0: Doing. Welcome back to episode 54 of the Yins Above Replacement Baseball Podcast. Slim Pickens at 54 in terms of a memorial number. There's only a half dozen guys. Denny Bautista, Jonah Bayless, Orlando Merced, Brian Fisher, Stan Fansler, and Rich Goose Gossage. And nobody wore that number for more than a couple of years, so I guess nobody wanted it. I'm Rob Beardchoffel, I cover the Pirates for The Athletic, and I am joined by the irrepressible
1: Stephen, Jane Nesbitt, and Rob, we have a guest today, a very good guest, and this is a man who Blake Cederland recently called his hair inspo. This on the line is MLB.com writer, Pirates reporter, Adam Barry. Adam, thanks for coming on the show. Wow, we're a minute
2: in and I'm getting ball jokes. Thanks, thanks for having me, I guess.
1: <laughs> So a little bit of background for, for everybody. At one point we were, all three of us were competitors from different locations. I was at the Post Gazette, Rob was at the Trib, Adam at MLB.com. Um, Adam, you and I both came onto the Pirates beat in, uh, would have been 2015, right? So you were working with the late, great Tom Singer and I was, uh, joining the, the PG Pirates beat. Uh, give us a little bit of background about how you got to be in that position in 2015.
2: Yeah, so I've technically been with MLB.com in some capacity since 2010. Uh, that I started that year as an associate reporter, which is a fancy word for intern, covering the Rays. <laughs> uh, went on to win the American League East that year. Uh, I got lucky enough and did well enough that they invited me to come back. 2011, uh, worked in San Francisco covering the Giants. Uh, came on full-time at MLB.com, worked in Tampa doing anything and everything. I spent a lot of time on the Himes Avenue sidewalk in Tampa covering Yankees rehab and minor league stuff. Uh, bounced around, covered the Nationals a little bit. Uh, And then I was told in late 2014 that Tom Singer, uh, my late great predecessor, was going to be spending his last season on the beat before he retired and got to spend time at home with his family in Arizona. And they said, would you like to go cover the Pirates? And I said, sure. And moved to Pittsburgh, spent 2015 with Tom, which was a wonderful experience with him and all of you. And you know, we had about 30,000 people on the Pirates beat. It felt like at that point in the press box on a given night. It was awesome. And then uh, took over the beat full time after the 2015 season solo, and I've been here ever since.
1: I was thinking about this, um, how, how to ex- exactly say this last night, but I was like, I think my my sense for you, Adam, is that there's no one in Pittsburgh who has a better feel for the Pirates. That doesn't mean that you're like breaking every single single bit of news or or writing uh, massive features every day, but it's like you can go on the radio and you can like even handle. Give every side of something, and you help explain baseball in a way that I still don't get. Like I, I listen to your radio hits. And I'm like, dang, that, okay, that okay, that's how I should be saying that. Um, and so I'm curious to hear because you are more unemotional. You didn't grow up a Pirates fan, neither did I. Um, curious because I've been working on something this week. It's going to come out tomorrow, and by the time this is up, it'll basically be up. But the story is what went wrong after 2015, and fans have extremely strong takes um that basically boiled down to to payroll they say you didn't spend enough when you, you should have you had a chance to take that 2015 team and put it over the top and you just didn't and you know you and i have talked about it and i don't think it's mm-hmm. quite that simple so as a starting point uh what do you think went wrong uh after the 98 win 2015 season
2: I appreciate you saying that, first of all, and I do think it's kind of just the product of having lived it. It's like a weird specialty in history. You know, some people like the Civil War, some people like 19th century Europe, and I lies in the post-2015 Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do think if you ask probably just your, your average person on the street or whatever, they would say, you know, what happened in 2016, and, and it's payroll, and it's John Neese, nice and it's Ryan Vogel song, and it's Juan Nicasio, and all those things. And yes, that is definitely part of it, you know. <laughs> Uh, the rotation and the pitching staff, which was the undeniable strength of the team from 2013 to 15, was not as good in 2016. But, uh, Stephen, I think you've done a good job pointing this out in some of the research uh, that that you've shown me as well, is that yeah. it's about the core. You know, the guys who were the core, you know, kind of the aircraft carriers of that 2015 mostly came back the following year. I think it was two of their top 11 by war, wins above replacement, according to baseball reference. Nine of the 11 uh, top performers came back the next season. Any of them, short of maybe Josh Harrison, were as good as they were in 2015. You know, 2016, Andrew McCutcheon was really bad for the first four months of the season and roughly a league average hitter by the time it was all said and done. You know, he was an MVP candidate in in 2015. Uh, Garrett Cole was injured in 2016 and then pitching injured even when he was on the field. And And he wasn't the same guy that he was in 15 when he looked like one of the best pitchers in the National League. Uh, Francisco Cervelli was not able to maintain the same health that he did uh, in 2015 um, I feel like I'm creating guys coming off of this list here Gregory Polanco probably wasn't as overall productive as he was at uh, the previous year uh, you know Starling Marte might have been the only guy who who kind of held serve I think Steven research might bear this out a little bit better yeah
1: yeah no it was it was Starling who who basically stayed the same he was a you know, a four-plus guy both years. And I think you go down to Josh Harrison, who just had more opportunity that following mm-hmm. year with with Neil Walker gone, the starting second baseman, and, and Jordy Mercer had a, a slightly better year, but still he's under one war. Either way, the rest of the um, – there's this beautiful chart you guys will see when the story goes up. Uh, I took the top 15 returners from the guys that were there in 15 and came back in 16 – And of course we're we're taking out a couple big names, right? You don't have uh Hap or Walker or Alvarez or or any of that. But still, these top fifteen, these are fifteen guys who were above replacement level in twenty fifteen. So you're getting production out of these guys. And the following year, if you look at um it's almost across the board um regression, decline, uh maybe it's just them coming back to you know, down to earth a little bit after what was an incredible twenty fifteen for almost for almost everyone on that roster. Uh, they ended up, those 15 guys, the, the ones that you're expecting when you trade Neil Walker and, and let Jay Hap, uh go to Toronto and, and all that, you're expecting these guys are going to uh, maintain some of this momentum, and they just didn't. Across those 15, they lost 18 more from one year to the next, and and that's a pretty good way to, to figure out why you have a 78-win uh, team following a 98-win team, and and I know I think there's a disconnect when you're when you're talking to most pirates fans because um, we can all agree I think that a potential answer and a remedy to all this is just say spend way more money. um so sure, if you come off of twenty fifteen and you jack the payroll to one hundred fifty million then sure you could you could fix a lot of these problems you keep Jay happy you, uh you don't try to do something fancy with with uh Neil Walker and turn him into potentially 3 years of John Neese which turns into actually just like 5 months of him and so yes jacking payroll to like the stratosphere or or even you know 20 25 million could solve some of these problems but the fact is this is the job Neil Huntington was hired to do and he knew the constraints and and so what we have is, is what he tried to do, which was put a perennial contender onto the, t- onto the field. And it worked for a long time and they got close. Um, you know, even an 82 win team wasn't, you know, terribly far off, uh, just, uh, two years ago. But ultimately there were a couple of trades that just,
0: you know, sunk him. I think the fact too that the, you know, looking at your number five and six guys on the team in terms of total war, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's Sean Rodriguez and Matt Joyce. Um, yeah. you know, two guys who, you know, by, Definition or, or the utility guys, and if, and if you you know you're getting more production out of them than you're getting from from Cole or Polanco or Milanson or Cervelli or Tony Watson or any of those guys, you know it's a clear sign. I remember talking with coming into spring training this season. I guess it was before 17, and people were asking Bob Dunne what happened in 2016, and you know and his answer, kind of not slightly veiled, was just you know the the players let us down essentially. The players didn't do what the players were supposed to do. And I remember think, hearing that from him and thinking, well, that sounded something like – because knowing Bob, it probably came from Neil Huntington in terms of Neil's explanation at the end of the year because I'm sure Bob called him sure. and said, right. what yeah. the hell happened? And Neil gave him that <laughs> and, and Bob gives us the Reader's Digest version of it. And then that was it. No one else from management ever came forward – you know, Huntington never, and to his defense, I guess to a degree, he always felt like he was under attack, and I think he saw maybe what was happening. But no one ever explained that point fuller, and it, they just, by doing that, they allowed that, you know, resentment by the fans to, to grow and fester. But then again, too, to your point, Stephen, jacking up the payroll to the stratosphere, If you, if you kick it up to say 120, 130 million dollars, you're jacking it into the stratosphere of the major league average.
1: League average. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean.
2: That's the thing too, is that may, the payroll is always going to provide margin for error. So, like if they did have J. Hab, yes, you're seeing less of John Neese or, or Juan Casio, and that would have obviously been a good thing. Like I, I'm not here to say that like payroll wasn't a part of it or payroll wasn't an issue yeah. because it obviously was, and I would argue it became much more of a pronounced part of it after 2016. Because if you'll yeah. if you'll hop on the wayback machine and go with me to Bradenton, Florida, spring of 2016, we're all there. We're having a great time. Part of the part of the narrative then was that they were heading into the season with their biggest payroll in franchise history. Mm-hmm. We couldn't yeah. believe they kept Mark Melanson. Perfect <laughs> that Mark yeah. Melanson. We were stunned to see that guy walk into the Pirate City Clubhouse that they kept yeah. him. Uh and, and you know, and then the other narrative that I remember, because I think I probably wrote one of my spring training features about it, was like, you know what, they made some pretty questionable pitching moves this offseason, but, like, it's Ray Searich. He can fix anybody. Mm -hmm. And this is when we started to see the cracks in that plan, and by cracks, you know, kind of crumbled open. Because not only could he not fix John Neese, not only could he not fix Ryan Vogelsang, not only could he not fix Juan Nicasio beyond the month of March, Francisco Liriano fell apart in 2016, and he went from being this incredible story to literally the worst starter in Major League Baseball until they traded him in this deal that revealed I would argue probably more of the flaws, which was this desire to, you know, try to thread the needle and not rebuild, but also not really go all in yeah. and cut the roll when there was the first sign of, uh, you know, attendance drops and these other issues that they were going to be facing. And then, you know, the, the problem sort of festered a little bit later on, but at the beginning of the year and heading into that season, I, I think we all now kind of jump into this narrative going back that it was like, Oh, well, we all knew they were screwed when they went out and they traded for John Neese. Nice. And it's like, no, there was enough – they built enough positive cachet at that point that we thought, ah, Ray will fix him. And then obviously that was – you know, Ray Searge kind of fell behind the times and that led to some of the issues itself in more recent years. But it was a different narrative, I guess, at the time. And, you know, Neil Huntington and Bob Nutting weren't going to come out and blame their players, even though it might have been the, the better thing for their sake and, you know, the better way to kind of explain that narrative because when they didn't get out in front of it, you know, everybody kind of jumped on them and piled on them for things yeah. that they did. That they were certainly to blame as well.
0: I guess we didn't see it at the time, but that was kind of the beginning of a dry rot that kind of set in with the whole organization in, in the front office. Cause in terms of their, like you mentioned, the threading the needle approach, which yeah, yeah that should have been a big red flag. It's not going to work. And yet it carry it, the stagnation in, you know, in, in spending and ownership and a stagnation from the yeah. player in the players and the guys in the core. And, um, it, it took three seasons. 16, 17 and 18 before people started to see it and then in 19 it really broke loose and all hell happened in that clubhouse and everywhere else. So um yeah,
2: and part of it I think is that they they made enough decent trades, you know, getting Nova turned out to be a, a pretty good move and you know and then he came back and wasn't quite as good and they got the former Felipe Rivero, who was a, an adequate, obviously good replacement for Mark Melanton at the time. And then that obviously went to hell last year. And, you know, they made enough good moves, but it, you know, you're making single moves to patch holes of kind of a, when your foundation is cracking. And I, I think that was probably the bigger problem and sort of the overall representation of the way that I saw the team at the time.
1: Yeah. My my takeaway when digging through all these uh, moves they've made over the last, you know, four seasons um, was that I don't, I, I don't, think there was much they could do to save 2016 in the end i think the underperforming across the board was uh no jay hap was going to fix that pedro alvarez's homers weren't going to fix that they it didn't end up really mattering all that much that neil walker was elsewhere i guess other than the fact that maybe you would have hoped to get something more than just a (laughs) few months out of a starting pitcher for him but i do think that the problems that began in 2016 or after that 2015 season certainly led to what happened and you saw that the Three seasons from 17, 18, and 19, where you're seeing declining attendance big time, right? We had 2.5 million, I think was the attendance in 2015, and that slipped down to 1.5 maybe, um, as of last season. And so th- certainly we've seen fan apathy and, and frustration, and, and, you know, it's deserved when you, when you miss the playoffs a few years in a row. That just happens. Um, and the Pirates, I guess you can, you can, um, you can definitely criticize the Pirates' front office and ownership for not capitalizing on whatever momentum they had after 13, 14, 15. I mean, we were, yeah. we were all in town at that point. People were, were crazy for the Bucco's. And it felt almost unfair that they were getting kicked out of the playoffs after just one game in, in 15. They had uh, a pretty incredible team. And you think about it now, you look around that clubhouse and, and a lot of guys were playing their last, last games in a Pirate uniform. And a lot of guys wouldn't be back. However, they did have, you know, a nice core coming back and you, you remember at that point in time, the Glassnells and Tyones and, and, uh, Cool Williams, they had just traded for Trevor Williams at that point for, for basically nothing because it was a couple front office guys that he was, uh, was swapped for effectively. Um, they had that wave and I think they were, they were saying, you know, in 16, I think our offense will be great. Our defense should be good, and we'll patch over this the holes in the pitching staff with Nicasio and Nice and Vogelsong. And by the end of this, you know, Tyone should be ready. Uh, Glass now, uh, even even in the position players of Josh Bell and and uh, yep. uh, I'm forgetting somebody there. Um, Adam Frazier. Okay. Yeah, should be close. Should be close behind. And so the plan they always had a plan. It's it's not hard to see what that plan was in hindsight, even at the time. Uh, you know, Ryan Vogelsong never, never was going to be your ace. But if he could get the, get them, uh, you know, build them a tiny little bridge until Trevor Williams was ready or something like that, then then you can see the, the, you know, the reasoning behind it. But again, like you said, Adam, the the whole reason this all fell apart was you're not providing yourself any room for error. This is a team that had six starting pitchers in 2015. They had uh, five regulars, and then when AJ Burnett got hurt, they swapped in Jay Hap. Uh, I think maybe Casey Sadler did a paternity leave uh start, too. But, like, you had everything work right in 2015. You can't count on that going forward. So, you know, at some point, Ryan Vogelsang won't just be your sometimes number five starter. You have to rely on guys like that. And the prospects weren't ready. And we see, you know, the, the farther you go, the more guys on expiring contracts that you end up trading in 16, 17, 18. Some of those trades work. And eventually it just I, – I think we reached the, the Cole McCutcheon turning point of – What do you want back for those guys? There's no question that the McCutcheon trade worked out great. They got a a good reliever in Cockrick. Mm -hmm. They have an incredible young talent in Brian Reynolds. But the Cole one, I mean, Adam, what's like? what's your read on what they should have done at that point?
2: I mean, at that point, to me, it's either you... At that point, my argument was, all right, if you're not going to draft and develop or if you're not going to acquire stars if you're not going to go out and pay for stars which obviously they're not they're just they're just not going to go out and sign a free agent who's you know a you know a lorenzo kane even at the time i think would have been the, the comparable argument for the brewers with what they were doing or you know go trade make the big trade for christian yelich also like the brewers did as a similar small market team then you have to develop stars from within and you can only do that essentially with these kind of high ceiling you know Talented young prospects, you're you're less likely to get that ceiling the closer they are to the majors. And once again, they tried to do this thing where they're not rebuilding, they're not tanking, which is funny because they were accused of tanking in spring training, which led to one of my favorite headlines of all time, which was like Pirates GM insists they're not tanking. It's just not true. <laughs> That's where we were at heading into 2018. It's that the GM had to get out in front of it and be like, I swear we're trying to win. We're that not horrendous. Right, we're not horrendous, and people had to ask that because, like, they went out and they got this kind of mixed bag of of players from from the Astros, which was designed to, you know, patch holes on the roster, but you didn't have that star upside. You didn't have that, you know, Brian Reynolds-type upside in that deal, and, you know, I guess it would have upset fans even more so, and, you know, they did have to deal with this public perception thing, and they did have to try to, quote-unquote, win fans back and say, hey, you should still come out to the ballpark because, look, we're still trying or whatever. Yeah. They did that with Colin Moran and Michael Feliz and Joe Musker, who I do think is, you know, potential to be a very good major league starter. But yeah, yeah, that didn't necessarily make them a lot better in 2018, and it didn't make them a lot better in 2021. It made them, it gave them the ability to be pretty good, 82 win good in 2018 and fine in 2021. And I think that is one thing that you've seen from Ben Charrington coming in is his, his Marte trade, which is his first big opportunity to kind of, You know, set the tone and establish what he wanted to do with something like that. He went out and he got young potential stars in A-ball. And, like, that makes them worse in 2020, if there Mm -hmm. is a 2020. Mm -hmm. But it might be a lot better in 2023. And it's picking a direction. And that was sort of the, the failure of the end of the Neil Huntington era was that they didn't pick a direction. They tried to just stand pat while not really necessarily making upgrades and keeping up with the way that the game was evolving around them. And it, it didn't work out. You know, they were pretty, they were fine in 2018, and they did not build off of that. They did not add to that core in any meaningful way beyond the Chris Archer and Keone Kelly trades, which I would argue actually subtracted from the core that they could have had in
0: 2019. Twenty. I think they convinced themselves that of that. Well, if we just get there, anything can happen. Theory, and you know, just just get to 500, and then anything can happen. Just get the water, yeah, part, and then anything can happen. But. Uh, you know, anything is, there's also a bad anything that can happen. And, <laughs> and we've seen, a, you know, too much of that. And I, You're exactly spot on there, Adam with, with you know, I think the, in, in coal much more marketable at that point than, than was McCutcheon. Cause it was clear that McCutcheon wasn't the same guy and it was a, a fast fall off and people were frightened by that. Other GMs were frightened yeah. by that, but yeah. they, so they opted to get what they could for McCutcheon. and You're right. They did very well with McCutcheon. Um, I've even had a couple of scouts tell me that I think even the pirates were surprised by how well they did with McCutcheon. I don't think they realized <laughs> quite all that they were getting in that deal. Um, but yeah, the the cold trade, it really seemed to be just kind of a spackle trade, just to kind of fill you know fill this little hole and put this guy out there. And it just yeah, not what you should do.
1: I th- I think uh, what was funny about looking back at that trade is. Uh- I I didn't think at the time that they had a, had a dream of contending that year. You just gave away your, you know, best player over the course of that decade and and uh, your best pitcher who was still at two years left on a, on his deal and and you got a bunch of, you know, maybes back for him. I didn't think they had a, a prayer in 2018, but the move that I think did too well and almost put them in a position to to make that Archer Kella day happen was the Corey Dickerson, the very like yeah. strange late spring training move where the Rays decided we got this all star uh we don't th- we don't like his defense at all and we're just gonna we're gonna go with young guys and D F A him and the pirates pick him up at the price of uh uh Tristan Gray and, and Dan Hudson, reliever who had <laughs> not given them a whole lot, uh ends up being a World Series champion, so it goes to show. Um, but they, uh, they, they pick up Corey Dickerson and I was looking, remember they had that, they had the stretch in July, uh, 13 or 14 games or something that they won. And it basically oh, turns saying, them, yeah. turns them from a seller into a buyer. And, yeah. oh man, if that hadn't happened, and of course I went back and looked, and Corey Dickerson had like a, you know, 1.2 OPS or something over that, <laughs> over that stretch. He was on, he was on fire. If that stretch doesn't happen, I don't think, they even think about pulling the trigger on the Chris Archer deal. Chris Archer, let's remember, people have been wanting a Chris Archer type for years. Fans have been yeah. wanting them to, to go crazy and do that because you're not gonna get him in free agency. You're not gonna pay that kind of money. Now, at the trade deadline, you know, the, the tensions are just right where you might, Get what you, you know, you could see as a bargain or, uh, it just makes sense. And you can have him for this year and you can have him for a couple more years. It just made sense with the Pirates. It's the only kind of, uh, big name pitcher they're going to get is one with a couple years left, Mm -hmm. um, or someone that's just like just in the tail end of his contract. And so if you remember that day, there is all kinds of momentum. There is all kinds of excitement happening around that, uh, Around that trade deadline. Because the Pirates have made themselves a contender. They have given reason to believe in them. And... I guess Neil Huntington believed enough to, to make that trade happen. Again, this isn't just his idea. This is a lot of people in the organization thought this was right. Tyler Glass now was a bit of a mess, is I think a safe way to put it. He, they'd given him every chance in the world in the rotation didn't work. They put him in the bullpen. wasn't working there. And Austin Meadows had done some really good things and, and thrown some question marks as well in the majors. Shane Boz was you know their first-round pick, so it wasn't really uh, – you didn't know a whole lot about him yet. That trade ultimately is what was, what absolutely capsizes the Neil Huntington, uh, regime, right? I think the, the the, yeah. the, the Cole trade, the Cole trade in hindsight was really bad because of what he became, but Garrett Cole was not, uh, he wasn't doing particularly well with the Pirates. He was a good pitcher. He wasn't an, you know, ace ace as he became in the Cy Young. He was a Cy Young candidate for one year in Pittsburgh and they were trading him, um, kind of at a low point. And so what happens is they, they, they have this big run in July. They make this huge trade in Chris Archer and it basically immediately goes wrong. Um, Adam, take us back to that day. What, like, did you, did you like the trade that day? Did you think this was, um, an, an awful move and that Tyler Glass now would turn into Cy Young in, in, you know, a split second?
2: First of all, I would like to give away my lead for a story that I'm going to write eventually. I just don't know when, which is that the Chris Archer trade, the Chris Archer provided the perfect image of the Chris Archer trade the moment he showed up to PNC Park. He was wearing an Antonio Brown jersey, which seemed like <laughs> which seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, this was, it was this big thing, yes. and he was like, look at me, I represent Pittsburgh, Antonio Brown, you guys like Antonio Brown, right? This can't go poorly, <laughs> right?
0: What could possibly go wrong?
2: <laughs> we just very quickly learned that, like, no, a lot can go wrong, and you'd be surprised by how quickly it can go wrong, and you're gonna wish none of this ever happened. Uh, to me, the, the issue there was that it, it, it revealed a lot, all basically all of the Pirates' problems at that time in one move, which was, yeah. They were overvalu- overvaluing club control, which is why they saw Chris Archer as so valuable, not just the yep. pitcher that he was, which if you, if you recall, and I, I knew this because I knew a lot of people in Tampa from having covered the race, they were saying, you know, this is a, a big time strikeout guy and an innings eater and a league average producer. I think he had a yep. 99 ERA plus over the previous two or three years when he came to Pittsburgh at the time. Mm-hmm. And it still felt like a big deal because he was this name and he was a guy and he was this guy that other teams wanted. And wow, the Pirates beat other teams for Chris Archer. And then, you know, obviously it, with Glass now, it revealed ultimately their inability to develop pitching prospects and
1: yeah.
2: the in- inability to develop that high ceiling star level talent that I was talking about earlier. They could not develop their own. If they had the talent there, they just they didn't develop it. Imagine Tyler Glasnow at the core of this two thousand twenty twenty one rotation. It's a different looking team than it is yeah. with Chris Archer. Chris Archer's club option, it you know revealed their kind of unwillingness to. Ride it out with young, uh, talented position player prospects like in Austin Meadows. You know, the, I don't, I don't think we, any of us think that he would have been bad if he had stayed here. They just never really gave him the chance beyond that, that initial run, uh, you know, yeah. when he came to the big leagues. And then it revealed that they didn't necessarily know what they had in, in their own minor league talent as well with Shane Boz and some of the flaws that they had in player development. When Boz goes over to Tampa Bay and one of the first interviews he does is he says, Oh yeah like they showed me my spin rate turns out my spin rate's awesome and this is this is an argument the the, pi- yeah. the pirates knew that Shane Boz's spin rate was great they knew it yeah. I yeah. knew that Shane Boz's spin rate was great, which is a problem <laughs> that I know it but Shane Boz doesn't so that revealed just so many flaws yeah. in the communication and the implementation of this data that like the front office didn't get stupid. They knew these things that were happening in the trends that were developing around the game. They just, for some reason, lost the ability to translate it to players and to use that data in any sort of actionable way. And I think it's funny that it all kind of came out in this one transaction. And then, you know, they weren't able to to translate that data to Chris Archer as well, which is why we're still talking about, you know, a year and a half later, whatever it is, that maybe we'll see the real Chris Archer. It's
0: it's been a year and a half, you know? I've I've talked with a couple, couple minor leaguers over the past couple of years, and 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 the Boz thing has kind of come up a little bit. How you know? Can you believe he didn't even know was been rate or whatever? And <laughs> and a couple of the guys had had kind of said to me that maybe that's they they kind of sense that's the way management wanted it. Like management would 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 you know knew these things, and and but they basically were approaching it like well, we're going to be the ones that enact it, that act upon it, that make changes. We're not going to necessarily convey to the player how or why or what we're doing. We just want the player Ooh. to do whatever it is we tell him and th- just to accept that it's right and just to do things and and, and it will all work out in the end. And, you know, I, you, you can only speculate on, you know, I'm like, well, why would they want to do that? And one guy's like, well, maybe they just don't want us to know too much about what works for us. Going back to the, right. you know, you look at, you know, how often does a guy stay with the Pirates for or any club, but especially with the Pirates for a long period of time. So you don't want this guy coming back in four years with another club and beat your brains in. Um, but it just seems like a very bass, awkward way of doing it that you don't give the player the knowledge to use the tools. I mean, yes, there's a chance that someday that guy will come back and throw a perfect game against you and, Game two of the World Series or the DS or probably more like the game two of the season. But, <laughs> you know, you, you just can't worry about what's going to happen five or 10 or 15 years from now. Give the guy the tools now. Give him the knowledge to use those. And it seemed like that the management style of this front office was to not do that for whatever reason. And it was a damning thing. I think that's one of the minor years calling me now to complain, so. <laughs> Can you believe they didn't tell me?
2: Uh, I, I apologize if we're jumping forward too much here, but if you remember when they, when the Pirates signed Jordan Lyles and we all found out they signed Jordan Lyles, mm-hmm. we all yeah. heard, and I don't, Steven, I can't remember if you were in the room, Rob, I know you were. We all heard Jordan Lyles, you know, you know, we know that like it might not look good because whatever, but you know, we look at what he did at the end of the season with the high four seamer and the low curveball, you know, the way that they tunnel off each other, that plays well. Okay. Good. Like, you know that. You recognize that. You've, you've identified the talent. Good. Mm -hmm. How come they did not convey that information to Jamison Tyon, to Garrett? And And how come it wasn't even necessarily translated to the, you know, to Jordan Lyles when he was on staff? You know, he understood it, but how come it's not coming down as a directive from the manager, from the pitching coach, translated to the catchers? How come I think they stopped for all their talk about Pulling on the same end of the rope and, you know, 25 men and all that kind of stuff. I think the communication breakdown yeah. really, really, really Huge. became Huge. apparent in the past year, yeah. especially where they just, they were not, they were not practicing what they were preaching. And this, you know, they, they believed all these concepts and they had all this data and they invested in all this stuff. And then none of it was really showing up on the field, which I, I think gets to this just entire organizational breakdown where it's not just the front office. It's not just the players like it was in 2016. It is yeah. everything, which is why we're going to be covering a lot of new people whenever we get that together baseball. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think that was particularly pronounced in, in their pitching development too because you saw over the course of the last season, uh, Ray Sears would come out you know, a couple times, he did, and basically be like, no, 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 no. I'm not telling all these guys to throw two seamers. I'm not trying right. to <laughs> impose this philosophy on them. But if you talk to the pitchers like – I don't know if if he's imposing it, but like, yeah, the the his, his his plan, his philosophy, and and not only his, but the whole program they came up with was yeah. that we're going to throw in a certain manner, and there was no real huge push to be like, hey, what do you do, super? Let's let's just get in the get in the cage, or you know, let's, let's look at track man and see like, what do you do well? What do you want to do better? Let's let's like create pitches like they're doing today, which is like would have sounded insane to the twenty thirteen fifteen <laughs> pirate era. Um, it's, it's a key Why don't We don't even create pitches. We got a two-seamer. <laughs> <laughs> I throw one great one. And we'll throw um, it
0: inside a lot.
1: Yeah. But you, you talk to, so you talk to Ray and you hear one thing and Ray, you know, we absolutely all love talking to him. He's a, he's a really fascinating guy and very, very funny. Um, but then you talk to these, these pitchers and I'm like, no, like, I definitely felt like this is the way they wanted me to pitch. And the, the calls yeah. that we making on the field and in, in bullpens, um, emphasize that. So it's again, a communication thing. If you're not telling them to pitch a certain way, then you need to, to make it clear what you do want from them or what you do think is right for them. And I think that's what we've seen people. A lot of people have asked me, like, what do you, what was different in spring training? How did it seem different? And I was like, I don't know if necessarily the staff is acting in a hugely different way, but players feel that they're being told different things. Now players feel that the emphasis is on making me better. Making, uh, my skills more enhanced. And that's a huge difference, right? That, that that's no longer, uh, a, here's what our philosophy, here's what our, the greater good of our team needs, which again, you do need that at some point, but at certain times of the year in spring training and like, this should, this should focus should be on the individual, making them, um, not only content, but making, making them better because that's going to ultimately lead to a better team. And I think that does change the vibe.
2: I think you do have to kind of dig through some of the cliche stuff. And granted, I just spent 4,000 words in the weeds with Ben Charrington for stories <laughs> like on Pirates.com. And you hear, you know, you hear player-centered culture in a press yeah. conference, you know, in the media room or whatever. And you're like, okay, that sounds nice. What does it mean? It's exactly what Stephen was just saying. It is how can we make... You better. What do you have that we can make better? Whereas I would argue the pirates in in the past and to their success in 2013 through 15, and then ultimately to their detriment after that, they were an organization centered culture. It was, these are our tenants. How can you enact them? Whereas now, you know, it it is Ben Charrington player-centered. It's Derek Shelton preaching player-centered. What do you need to succeed? How can we help you be better as opposed to how can you help us do these things that, you know, that we want to do and that we've shown to be successful for a couple of years there? I I think that does show up. And, you know, the the trend in the game recently is is player improvement. You know, it's Garrett Cole. Unfortunately for the Pirates, a lot of the examples are from their players going elsewhere. It's Garrett Cole learning how to best utilize his stuff in Houston. It's Tyler Glasnow, best learning how to util- utilize his stuff in in Tampa Bay to get away from the Pirates. It's J.D. Martinez, you know, figuring out his swing. It's, uh, you know, it's Max Muncy going from, uh, you know, waiver wire, scrap heap with the A's to a legitimate, you know, pay Ruth for, for on a home runs per at-bat basis with the Dodgers. And I think the Pirates have not had many of those success stories, in part because they were that sort of organization-centered baseball operations culture, whereas the idea under Ben Charrington is player-centered. You know, what can we do to maximize your talent? And I think you did see the difference this spring, and that that was the most tangible thing to me, is, you know, you're talking about, you know, guys digging into the Rapsodo data and actually being told what it means. And also there's multiple Rapsodo units and cameras where it's not just, you know, Aaron Razum lugging around one Rapsodo from field <laughs> to field, like it's his lunchbox. You know, there was an investment in these kind of things. And I think before you can kind of, you know, just sort of check the box and say, "Well, we've got our app soda. Oh, we know what we're doing." You have to invest the the finances and the people and the learning in it, and then explaining it to players. Which I think, you know, again, they, you know, maybe it's the brains and fluid, are you know viewing things through that kind of spring training lens. But that, to me, felt real from the people that we talked to down in Bradenton, and, and it wasn't there in past seasons.
0: Well, for me, the, you yeah. know, picking up that I, I noticed that the, the the moment I walked into Pirate City. And in that hallway that leads to the clubhouses, they, you remember there used to be yeah. that locker, and it, it was a tribute locker, but it was also more than that. It, it served as a, a a template locker for every minor leaguer and in, in, in that in, who walked into that building. This was an organization that was concerned with where its minor leaguers stored their shower slippers in the locker right. you know i mean that's to the level of of control the stalinist russia in terms of where you could where you could put your soap on a rope if that's what you so chose to, to shower with you know and it, it, but when it came to the the sharing of information there wasn't a lot of democracy there it was a very fascist approach and i think sometimes you wow. need, you know, so, yeah i think political but sometimes you need a little anarchy sometimes you need a little free expression of ideas and guys You know, guys talking with each other about how things work and then not just talking about it, but then having the freedom to try that and do that. And I don't think we saw enough of that. Looking back, we didn't see enough of that in the model league system. And yeah, for a club that admits it's going to have to produce its own talent, what you got was a lot of clones. And when the, the template went bad, you got a lot of bad clones.
2: And I do want to get an idea there too as well though, Rob, and it does cut back to payroll a bit.
0: When, you know, when we talk about Cole
2: going to Houston, he had a Verlander there. You know, when you talk about these guys going up, they have, they have veterans, and not only veterans, they have guys with what Clint Hurdle might have called skins on the wall. You know, respected (laughs) veterans. You're, You're going, you're going to listen to what they have to say because they've proven it. And when you don't necessarily invest in free agency, you know, when you're out signing the Lonnie Chisholm Halls and whatnot, you don't have those guys in there who are going to, step up and say, listen to me, I've done this before, you know, and guys are going to flock to them. Yeah. And that's why a signing, it might not have been a big deal, but a signing like a Gerard Dyson, a guy who's been around for so long and been on so many winning teams and been on a forward-thinking team last year like Arizona or a Derek Holland who's been around, you know, somebody that guys can kind of listen to, they're not these big dollar signings that people are going to listen to and ultimately you do need some of those, you know, to, to succeed. But right. there isn't veterans that can kind of pass that down, because some players want to listen to other players, too. They're more likely to listen to their their peers than they are to their superiors, I think. That's just kind of human nature. Mm
1: -hmm. Adam, you mentioned this earlier, but you are wrapping up, I think, you have one part left of this Charrington series you've been been doing, um, which I definitely recommend everyone go look at it. Pirates.com, there's, there's, I think, three of the four, am I right, Adam? Three of the four are up so far?
2: I think the fourth one goes live on Wednesday. It was supposed to be one big
1: story, but they were like, Adam, this is 4,000 words. Please stop. <laughs> That's only allowed over at theathletic.com. <laughs> right, um, yeah. uh, so I was curious, you've gotten a chance to sit down, um, you know, a, a few times with, with Ben and, and gotten to know him a little bit. What are some early impressions about uh, Ben and, and the way his background is, is fed into the way he's going to operate um, as Pirates GM? So a funny story about
2: that profile series, uh, other than it's supposed to be uh, one story was that originally when I sat down with – when I planned to sit down with Ben in spring training, I, I had it marked down since whenever he was hired that we're going to talk about his year at Columbia University. And then one day I wake up and look on Twitter.com, my goodness, who's written about Ben Stein at Columbia University but mm. Stephen J. Ness, <laughs> so we had to audible a little bit as far as the plan went. And uh, I, I, I'm fascinated by people who get a second chance because I think so yep. much of this kind of, uh, you know, a statement on their first opportunity and, and what they learned. And then I, I kind of didn't necessarily know where it was going when I sat down, which is, you know, just me being an awesome reporter. And what kind of came out of it was this idea that, you know, learning is central to who Ben Charrington is. And, you know, I talked to Ross Atkins in, in Toronto and some other people who have known him along the way. And, and especially from talking to him, You know, it's a guy who, near the end of his tenure in Boston, he sat down with his entire baseball operations staff, and they reviewed every transaction they made over a two-year period based on all the information they have, how it panned out, et cetera, just to kind of view, all right, what was our decision-making process like? And the thing Ben took from that that I thought was really interesting is that it almost doesn't matter. You know, the day-to-day, you're going to learn about the transactions you made. He wanted to see – forest not the trees or in this case that you know the individual rings on the trees he wanted to see all right what was leading our process what was our philosophy what what direction were we trying to go and i think he learned a lot from that which was really interesting to me and part of it was that you need to learn your personnel before you start making moves and that's not just yeah. players you need to learn front office staff and i think he did a really good job of that uh, from all the people i spoke to this off season and you know it's not just the interviews and talking to agents and, you know, talking to some players and, and talking to coaches and everyone on down the line, it's getting to know them as people and make them feel comfortable in an environment where it's not, uh, tomorrow borrow Rob's thing, a, a fascist society. You know, it, it's taking them out to – I love the story Kevin Graves told about uh, Ben just walking down the hall and saying, hey, we should all go out and get some appetizers and some drinks. And yeah, they, walk,
1: yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> they walk down to purgatory on the North Shore and they just – took up the whole outdoor area and they just talked and they got to know each other. And that created what's what I've been told is a very comfortable work environment, uh, which I think, you know, where everybody is kind of involved in the process and, you know, there is learning involved. And uh, I think we can kind of all say that in, that especially toward the end of the, the past regime, the circle kind of tightened a little bit. And there were a yeah. couple of people that were really sort of running the show. Uh, you know, there ultimately are going to be decision makers and primary decision makers and people who are charged with that stuff. But I think Ben kind of opening it up for everybody to feel involved and feel like their perspective is is welcome. He's a big wisdom of crowds guy. Uh, I think that does go along in this sort of information era in baseball, where you know what, somebody's going to dig up something and maybe that's going to be important and maybe that's going to be the next uh, you know turning point for for a player, a team, or you know a coaching style or something along those lines. So just kind of the constant desire to learn. The fact that he went back to Toronto and learned about modern player development and modern pitching development, especially. I think is really interesting. You know, that's that's an organization that literally invests in their executives getting a chance to learn. You know, they have funds for it. They have programs for it. Uh, so I think that was a pretty good spot for him. He talked a lot about player improvement, uh, which is something we touched on earlier. And then just sort of the last part, which is going live today, is just about kind of why he wanted to come here. And, you know, the, we all saw the the report from your colleague, Ken Rosenthal, a couple of years ago about how he wanted to come to an organization that he could build from the ground up. Yeah. You know, we all took that to mean – Rebuild, which, like, yeah, it, probably. And maybe, you know, there yeah. will be a rebuild of, of, of some length here. But basically what he meant was that he wanted to touch all of baseball operations. You know, he wanted to be involved in player development. He wanted to be involved in the major league roster. He wants to be involved in, you know, the, the nutrition and the, the exercise science and all those kind of things. And I think it was his priorities, basically. His, you know, wanting that 30,000-foot view that I talked about him wanting in Boston – is basically what the Pirates wanted out of their GM. Uh, so I think he saw it as a very good fit for that reason. It's really interesting. I know the quotes don't necessarily jump off the page, uh, believe me, but yeah, I think it's a really interesting and, and thoughtful GM uh, who's yeah. definitely learned some things since his first chance.
1: Yeah, that's that's sort of the impression I, I've had, too, of, of Ben. I apologize for taking your... Your, uh, Columbia angle. I had to, I had to do anything I could to get into the academia angle. Alex Spire had, had written about it when he was at the globe and, um, definitely recommend, uh, homegrown Alex's book about Charrington and the, and the Red Sox rise. A lot of interesting stuff, uh, in there. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the question is like, does, does that sort of purgatory atmosphere exist for years? Like is this a, something where, right. where in the getting to know you phase, you accomplish that and you hold on to that and, you know, that's, that's a great, um, anecdotes like that matter to people. They're why people want to stay places. They're why, why things work out is because you're working as a group. Um, and the whole question is like, does that stay? If he's here for 10 years, does that, does your nine and your 10 still feel like it has that welcoming atmosphere? That's what we're going to have to look, just wait and see once, once baseball actually, you know, happens. <laughs> if, right. Yeah, I, if, I think when, I'll point maybe. out too that,
2: that like Clint Hurdle was a wild, popular manager here and you know he was yeah. great in the clubhouse and whatnot. And there there are shelf lives and things do expire you know and eventually you need new voices and you know that, that's why I feel sometimes kind of bad about the way we we speak about Clint Hurdle and Neil Huntington in, in hindsight is that like it doesn't take anything away from the accomplishments they they, they made here and the things that they yeah. did and the culture they established back then but there are shelf lives and things kind of do tend to, to run their course
0: especially in a business like this where where so much is changing and, and you know, in the pirates, you can be the harbinger of change like they were in 2013, but that doesn't last. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the, the the bigger question is, well, then how do you, how do you extend that or how do you recapture that? Or if you can't, how do you generate something new? And I think again, going back to what we were talking before with the, the 15 and on pirates is that that, Magic just wasn't there anymore. The you know the, the the fairy dust bottle had run dry, and there was no way to recapture it. And things had to change, and they did. So I think the question now is, well, you know, let's let's see where these next few years go. But then eventually, we'll you know we'll be in a point where well, probably not me, and, and maybe, <laughs> but if, but five or ten years from now, we'll be talking about how this next you know how the next group picks up from where things had gone stale perhaps with the charrington regime
2: uh, i think he'll be here uh, if you look back <laughs> all be, mm-hmm. on opening day you know, it'll be 2034 covering the moon landing expos and it'll be me <laughs> and you still there
1: <laughs> now let's take a little pause here to hear from one of our sponsors if you're bored in the house bored in the house bored why not spend some time on yourself our sponsor today manscaped is here to make sure you're well-groomed above and below the belt. Manscaped promotes clean hygiene when it comes to shaving thanks to their Lawn Mower 3.0. Now, this product, I mentioned it to my wife recently, and she said, there's no way that's real. There's no way. I said, no, there's a way. It's real. And it is a Lawn Mower 3.0. Manscaped... The only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming. While you're probably looking for new things to do at home, and hey, we all are, why not make manscaping part of your routine? Manscaped is forever changing the grooming game with a Perfect Package 3.0. Precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. As they say, this is the perfect package for your perfect package. Do yourself a favor. Always use the right tools for the job inside the perfect package you also find a manscaped crop preserver something we all need an anti-chafing deodorant and moisturizer the perfect package 3.0 kit comes with a new and improved lawnmower 3.0 waterproof cordless body trimmer and a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your manscaping routine this third generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to prevent manscaping accidents and we have to avoid manscaping accidents friends Shaving is about to be nick free thanks to Manscaped Advanced Skin Safe Technology. Get twenty percent off and free shipping with the code the athletic at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code theathletic. And for a limited time, subscribers get not one but two free gifts: the Shed Travel Bag. $39 value and the patented high performance anti-chafing manscaped boxer briefs. So go to manscaped.com today and use the code, the athletic Adam. This is um, oh, a lot of good. You've done so far in this role, but you are the new BBWA uh, Pittsburgh chapter chair and you've already ruined the season. I appreciate yeah, thanks that. For uh, man. Uh, how, how, how has your rule gone so far?
2: Uh well we lost Bill Brink <laughs> he was in, he was when we started uh, That's a good man briefly lost, we briefly lost Kevin Gorman and then he came back so uh, I'll count that one as a as a net neutral for me uh, I think it's been I mean honestly we haven't had to do a whole lot so far because there hasn't been a whole lot of baseball but uh thanks to Rob for kind of passing the torch there and and sort of showing me the ropes of the way things are done uh, I think it's been it's been weird because, you know, I've had sort of that communication with the Pirates PR staff. And t- to credit them, they have been pretty good about making Derek Shelton and Ben Charrington and Todd Thompson available during this time yeah. to, to talk to us because there are some teams who aren't talking to anybody, you know, yeah. don't don't have any perspective uh, yeah. on the record about how the organization is going. And some of it is just arguing for access, which is weird because it's all about clubhouse access. But there is no clubhouse, and we don't know if there's going to be a clubhouse when we get back, if we get back. Um, so it, it's been... Different. I feel kind of like Garrett Cole the year that uh, Neil Walker made him the MLBPA rep for the Pirates and he had to deal with like Zika, Zika virus and all that other weird stuff that happened that year. And, he, and Garrett, I remember when we sat down that spring, he was like, "So I'm not going to do my Garrett impression. I almost, I almost broke into it just by nature. Uh, where, where he said like, yeah, I, I had too many. Neil left me with a bunch of plates. I dropped a couple of them. I feel kind of bad about that. <laughs> it's kind of like taking over from Rob.
0: I don't think I so much patch to the torches that I'd hurl the torch at you and run through. <laughs> so.
2: The flaming uh <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bottle, bottle rocket
0: of a torch at yeah. <laughs> me. Yeah. Yeah, I think when we do, I mean, one of the interesting things is just, you know, all these plans and proposals are put out there about how baseball might come back and could come back and all that. And one thing we, we've we never seen in any of those proposals is how exactly the media component will work. And I'm sure that's low on the priority list in terms of, of the logistics of everything, but – um this is an organ, you know, this is a sport <laughs> where there are stories about teams building stadiums and forgetting to include press boxes. <laughs> 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 Whoops. <laughs> and, and things like that. So it doesn't necessarily surprise me. Um, I, I think that the nature of the coverage of this game, in addition to the way it will be played is going to be far different from here on out. And, and whether it's a lasting, long lasting thing or a short lasting thing will remains to be seen. I think we'll be seeing you Potent- I think you're right I think the the era at least for now the clubhouse access is 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 a thing of the past you'll be covering quotes around that games by post game video conference perhaps even with Derek Sh- that would be weird Derek Shelton in a in a room you know three stories below us while we're sequestered in that press box maybe asking questions into our iPhones or something and that'll be <laughs> odd but um it It will be interesting to see how that develops. If it develops, there will be all kinds of changes in the game, I think, in a a lot of different ways. And something, Adam, that you and I, we we got emails last week, I guess, from from the national office, is how we're going to handle, and this is something I I hadn't thought of, how we're going to handle awards if the the season comes back. Um, In 1994, when the All-Star Game, every year the baseball writers hold their national meeting during the All-Star Game uh, week, end or if we whatever the, the all star festivities. <laughs> and uh everybody knew a strike was gonna happen that season and, and and that the season probably would be shut down. And we voted at that point to even if the season would end prematurely, to, to still distribute our postseason awards. Uh most Valuable okay. player, Cy Young, rookie of the year, manager of the year. And that's what happened. The season ended in I guess it was August and we still gave out awards that year based upon what it Transpire to that point. What do we do in 2020 if there's a season? If it's a three month season, are you still the MVP if you have you know twelve good weeks or great weeks (laughs) of of ball? And and what if? What about? I mean, you know, you always had National League and American League MVPs. We're not going to have that. Most likely we're probably going to, you know, if you look at that realignment proposal, you're going to have the Pirates and the Yankees and the Mets and the Red Sox and the Braves and the Nationals all in the same division. And will there be awards? Will there be design, can you still designate them a division MVP, uh, overall one and one MVP shall rule them? I don't know. How many (laughs) asterisks are we going to have to use for this season? That's,
2: that's. That's the interesting question to me is how do you do it by league? Because my opinion would be that as long as there's a season, there will be awards because you, there's a season to judge off of. Even you know everybody's on the same playing field, mm-hmm. you give awards off of that. But you're right. Like what if it's? I mean, I, I, I don't know which latest league proposal we're up to at this point. But like what if there's a grapefruit league and a cactus league? Like do we give a grapefruit league MVP? And then in 25 years when we look back, Or are we going to be like, hey, do they give a spring training MVP award? <laughs> What were they doing in 2020? Uh, I, I don't know. Like that, that's a really fascinating question to me. And, you know, I, I do think you have to give an award in some way or another. And, you know, maybe we do just draw it up on old lines and say, you know, it's the, the you know, old national league teams and, you know, this person had the best season and this person was the best pitcher or whatever. I, I think, you know, much like baseball kind of has to get creative and much like, you know, we're all going to have to get creative. I, I think we have to get creative with the awards structure if and mm. if and when there's a season you know first of all we have to hope and and pray and everything like that that there is a season to give awards based off of uh,
1: we we i just got a slack message from our producer the man behind the curtain uh chris <laughs> Meany, who said just just give everything to mike trout that would, that would be more yeah. like <laughs> a re- retroactive award but like mike we're sorry that you haven't gotten the awards you deserved over the years uh and here's here's your national league 2020 cy young uh you deserve it you've earned it yeah give them that, that's fine. I think that's fair. You
2: know, we're, we're MLB is promoting its stars. Mike Trout, the star, the star of stars. It's like Rob said, one, one to rule them all. Just <laughs> Mike Trout wins the awards.
0: Well, one thing I am confident saying is, I'm pretty, I'm sure. I, I, got, I certainly have this feeling that I have covered my last game. I have witnessed my last baseball game in in these United States without a designated hitter. I think it will be back. <gasps> It will be universal when we when we play this year, if we play this year. And I think after that, it is here to stay.
1: Hallelujah. Oh. It's time. <laughs> oh.
2: Is
0: this a subjective
2: debate among you two? I like to think of you two as a united front where nothing divides you. So I don't like we, haven't,
1: <laughs> we haven't really gone on, uh, on about this because I don't usually rant about anything, but I grew up in a <sighs> – american league state i was a you know a tigers fan and it's just a man it's a good way to let old men like stay in the game there's old men who just have some sort of clout left um (laughs) i love it i love it i don't want to i don't want to see prince fielder playing first base i'd rather see him just mashing um and i think the i mean for national league teams it's it's going to make your roster more expensive uh as you're going to have some Mm -hmm. more power but uh but w- why not let uh pedro alvarez have a little more shelf life in the in the in the league by just whoa, 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 walloping whoa. homers and not worrying about wow. defense you know i uh i think it's a much more i don't i don't enjoy watching pitchers hit about no. 98% of the time when they do something great then it's it's like yeah any of us could have done you know that's proof that that uh you know i could have hit a homer or something which is not true i never <laughs> hit a homer at any level uh even in softball so uh Pitchers give us hope, but I don't think it's necessary to have them batting once every nine batters in the, in the major league. So I'm all for a universal DH.
0: Well, Adam, I know you're a PS4 guy. I started playing, uh, I got MLB the show 19, not, I uh, for Christmas. So I don't have 20 yet. I'm so still, I'm still playing the 19 season. But in like the third or fourth game of my season, um, this year, I got a grand... The first grand slam hit by my virtual pirates in PS4 was clubbed by none other than Charlie Morton. So... Oh, my. Hashtag Whoa. pictures who rake. Hashtag band the wow. DH. I don't recall Charles being being much of a hitter. No, he pulled no. it down the line. It was at PNC Park, and he pulled it down that left field <laughs> line, snuck it around that pole. <laughs> but, you know, good golly, Miss Molly, that was a grand dinghy, and he, he did it. I do so, feel
2: like... You, are fans gonna hold that one over, like you know, your virtual fans or whatever? Kind of like everybody still holds the Bartolo Cologne home run over us is like the reason that pitchers could hit. It's like remember that one time, and it's like all right. three hundred and forty at bats of like pitchers weekly grounding out to shortstop and kind of like half jogging down the line before they have to go back and they and take an extra thirty seconds between innings so they can get ready and whatnot. Like, I mean, part of the and I don't think pitchers even necessarily like hitting. There are some like Joe Musgrove yeah. for the. Who are the exception, but it's like, go oh, ask Trevor Williams if he really loves hitting or James Tyone or Chad Cool might kind of like hitting. I don't know. Chris Archer loved hitting the idea of hitting when he was in the American
0: league. But I also like the way it affects other things too, though. Cause so, you know, now you say it's two, you know, if the pitcher makes the second out and you, and the lineup turns over, now you're back to that number one guy and the pitcher is just getting back to the dugout. You know, you, you know, you, you got to take the first pitch because you've got to give your pitcher some time to catch his breath or tie his shoes or whatever it is, get a drink at Gatorade or, you know, go bang on a trash can or whatever he's going to do. And I, oh, wow. that changes the the approach <laughs> of, of your number one hitter potentially. Now, if if there's a guy on base and there's two outs and your pitches, now you got to think about that too. What if this first pitch, if the guy grooves it, do I want to swing on it knowing that Who it's – Who
1: cares yeah. about that strategy? That's right, like yeah. strategy <laughs> that baseball does not
2: need. <laughs> right, and I would also argue that, like, we're at a point now where, like, the game is so, you know, homogenized that, like, they yeah. all have, we all talk about, like, oh, but the moves and the strategy, like, everyone <laughs> basically has the same strategy now, like, we know what is probabilistically the most likely and most successful move, and, like, manager just do that, so it's not like you have some rogue out there, like, pitcher's coming up, base is loaded, gonna let him hit, you know, like, they think that just doesn't <laughs> exist anymore, like the strategy stuff is overblown.
1: I'll concede that, like, the, the, you know, lineup strategy in double switches in the National League, definitely more interesting than the American League. I don't think it's necessary, uh, at all. What I, what I like about the, what I like about the, well, it's, it's, uh, more involved. We'll go with that one. But who goes
2: there and is like, ah man, like, let's go back last year, like, I'm coming to the ballpark and like, you know what, I could see Josh Bell and Jose Osuna in the same lineup today, and that's the Pirates example, but like, you know, (laughs) to see Clint Hurdle do some managing. Like, no, let's just, I don't
1: know. Who goes to the I'm with you. for that? I'm with you. I There's nothing I, I detest more than a pitcher having a good game getting yanked because of um, they need to get a pinch hitter in and try to get something happening. I think in the Mar- American League, I like that the pitcher gets to stay in as long as he deserves to be in that ball game, And, right. uh, and Whatever, you know, however he does is up to him. But it's not that you have to consider. I, I don't know. I I appreciate that people who grew up with it think there's something, you know, a really really fascinating <laughs> element. I didn't grow up with it. I do not find it fascinating. I think it's just a complicating factor that doesn't necessarily add to the game. And uh, I will never move off that pedestal.
2: I like to see professional athletes who are the best in the world at what they do do the thing that they are the best in the world at. And for not pitchers, the thing
1: that they they uh, suck at.
2: Right for, for hitters, the thing that the pitchers at. that's pitching. I don't know. It's, to me, it's, it's that, to me, it's that simple. That's what I kind of draw the line at. And Stephen, you talk about, uh, hitters, you know, grown men getting to, or old men doing the whatever, lasting yeah. long in the game, or yeah. whatever that beautiful, uh, <laughs> being romantic about baseball was. <laughs> but to me, that evolves into one of my hottest takes about these Pittsburgh Pirates, which is that Gregory Polanco is going to age gracefully into that kind of mm-hmm. late 30s DH where he just rakes stage of his career. It's going to take some time,
1: yeah, but,
2: but he's going to get there. Yeah. He's going to keep filling up, and then he's just going to be a DH for the better part of his 30s.
0: Give me more fat, overweight. 40 year old men who might hit a home run once a month. Yeah, give me more of that. You want to baseball, talk about, please. You want to
2: talk about relatable
0: with pitchers hitting a home run every
2: once in a while. What's more relatable than that?
0: <laughs> well, hey, we, we've
1: taken up all these good people's time for, for far too long. We could talk ball for hours. Adam, thank you for coming on the show. I hope you stay entertained in this quarantine and, uh, yeah, I hope we're back on, in in the press box sooner than later.
2: Yeah, I was gonna ask if we could keep doing this, cause I don't have a whole lot else to do, so. <laughs> <Just> keep
1: going. <laughs> Alrighty, that'll do it. Um Adam, we appreciate it. Uh, Rob, go, go think about the DH for a while. Ban the three batter minimum. To the listener, we'll talk to you once later.